have entered into fasting in the Lenten season or you've ever fasted for whatever reason, you might have had to for a medical checkup or some other necessity, you know how denying yourself uh, from any kind of accustomed pleasure, including food, results in a sudden sharp awareness of your desires, all kinds of desires. It's a funny thing. You deny yourself food, and suddenly you realize that your body is demanding attention, uh, and you're dealing with food, and yet you realize, I am not adequately respected. No one around here respects me. It's just food. <laughs> uh, or you deny yourself a constant stream of technology, and you realize... Uh, I'm irritable about everything. What does that have to do with that? Deny yourself any bodily pleasure, and pretty quickly you realize you're a bit of a slave to your body. That's your body telling you it's in charge. Well, that's part of that recognition is part of what Lent is for, part of helping us to reorient to the Spirit to the life that Christ has given us because he triumphed over death and is renewing us. And this walk in the newness of life that he's given us requires bringing the body into submission. Uh, the Bible calls this in places mortification of the flesh. Telling your body it's not in charge of you. We want repentance. We have asked for repentance which is a change of mind. We're asking that the Lord would do this kind of work in us. And we admit that we can't do it ourselves. The Lord has to bring about that change in us. We're not able. The goal of this process is our holiness, sanctification. We'd be more and more in his image. But the process, his work of bringing about this change of mind, this repentance, has often been called discipline. The Bible uses that term for it, discipline, the Lord's discipline. Last week, we began talking about the Lord's discipline uh, and how it comes when we recognize our need for it. So like Adam and Eve as they were hiding amongst the trees of the garden. They had just sinned. They had just fought, come into a fallen state. Travelers admitting that they're lost in the woods. We also have to come. We come to that place of no longer, of stopping the effort to fix ourselves. Of admitting that we can't just make our own way. We can't fix ourselves and so we stop trying to save ourselves. We stop thrashing. We stop lashing out. And when we, after trying to get out of the woods this way and that, we sit down. We grow quiet. And we finally listen. It's in that moment. It's there that we can hear the Lord ask, where are you? Again, he knows where we are. It's not for his information. It's for us. Where are you? 
how, how have you gotten here? It was the first question that he asked a fallen man and woman. It's the foundational question when he has dealings with us. It's the foundational question of healing. It's a question, but it's also a loving invitation. He's come near. When he's asking it, it's because he's drawn near. And he's not standing far off. He's not frowning as we often imagine that he is when we come to such a place. He is the loving father. He loves us. He draws near. And he is in that inviting us to tell him all about it. Open up. Tell me. Tell me how you're feeling. He knows how we got here. He knows every detail, but he wants us to open our hearts to him. And then we start talking, and that's revealing. Once we come to grips with where we are, I mean, the miserable state that we're in, our need for his help, when we're realizing and admitting our frailty, our helplessness, then like every other human being who's ever been, we start to shift blame. Once we start talking, we start blame shifting. That's our move. It happened immediately in the garden. Right after sin entered, God says, where are you? And then Adam admits their state. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. And then immediately blaming sets in. The woman you put here with me, she gave me this fruit, so I ate it. And then to the woman, it was the serpent. The serpent deceived me, so I ate it. Blame shifting, blame shifting. This is prototypical fallen human behavior. When our sin, when our weakness, when our vulnerability, when our limits, when our smallness gets exposed, we desperately want to deny it. We want to deny responsibility or at the least, um, this, this is a good modern move, we at least want to share the blame. I can't let it rest solely on me. If someone else can just share some of the responsibility, it relieves me a little bit. The case of Job is very helpful uh, as we're considering, as we go deeper into thinking about the Lord's discipline, this questioning. So please, if you have your Bibles with you, we're looking at the end of Job, Job 38 through the end of the book. Job is especially helpful for Christians. I don't know if you've engaged with the book much, but he was considered righteous. The opening of the book ensures that we approach this book, we approach this situation with that knowledge. He was righteous. This man, the word says, this man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is a helpful frame for Christians, partly because we tend to think we're righteous and justify our behavior when our behavior is not very righteous, but because we do actually stand in righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus being in him, that is our state, righteousness. 
So when God looked at his servant Job, and God says this at the beginning, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sees that state that we are in. So it's helpful, this book and what happens to Job is helpful because Job is not being punished for what he did. When things happen to us that go badly, it's not because of what we did. Even though we will tend to think that way. So that's, this happens. Despite Job's righteousness, things go badly. He loses everything. In the space of a day, he loses all his family. He loses his wealth, his honor, every marker of meaning and significance that he had leaned on. His life has come to nothing. All the good that he had done, everything he'd poured and invested in has come to nothing. And we know as readers, it's not because of anything he did. So Job then takes up the signs of brokenness. He tears his robe. He shaves his head. He, he sits in ashes. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the misery of helplessness. And it, sitting in that, God's foundational question comes to him and the person of his three friends, that question, where are you? Where are you, Job? They come and these three friends come and they sit in silence with him for seven days. That's where that question settles in. Where are you? And it's a, it's a silence of nearness. The invitation to speak is there. It's just held out. And so when he's grown quiet and Job has heard the question, where are you? Then he accepts the invitation and he opens his heart. He launches in. And this is the book of Job. Back and forth. Job with his three friends, and then a fourth joins. Job argues with his friends about the meaning of suffering, about who is to blame. Job curses the day of his birth. He curses his life. He curses human life. The meaninglessness of it. He loathes his own existence. And his friends, who were so good at first, once they start talking, they all insist in various ways that he is at fault. This must be because of what you have done. But Job, while he wants God to kill him, and he asks for it in various ways, he insists that he has been righteous. He holds on to that, and he can't understand why God has made him a target. Why won't God just leave him alone? He says in various ways. And he longs to understand. He wants to get a grip on this. 
And so he finally asks for God to answer his complaint. If you just answer me, why have you done this? Through it all, he admits that God cannot, he's, God admits, or, sorry, Job admits God's right to do anything. He's the maker. He has the right to do anything and the power to do it. He just wants to know why. So where are you, Job? This is where he is. Broken. Helpless. With a heart so heavy, it feels like it could burst. And the word is clear. He did not deserve it. Job did not deserve this. Job's story has been preserved for us on purpose. And there's a part of every human life that resonates with it. Every human life, no matter how small. Each of us has or will have some of Job's experience, something of it, some echo, because life does not make sense. Evil is given sway, wounds us, regardless of our guilt or innocence, regardless of how far we go into destruction or how much we try to keep ourselves pristine and pure. Evil touches us. It wounds us. The fall affects everything. And we keep that with us. We carry it. We carry it in that part of us that is going to stay with the world. When we go, when we depart to be with the Lord, the fleshly, utter vulnerability of frail, fallen human life, it's with all of us. In this room right now, we sit with it. And when the truth of the fallen world is brought home to us in one way or another, and it's brought home to us in so many different ways. It lodges here. It's lodged with us, and we carry it. And it's so delicate. It's, I hardly dare talk about this because some of you have experienced things. I can't, I don't know how you carry it. But it is part of us. It's part of human life, and so we have to talk about it. What does God say to this? What is his answer? Job 38.1, after Job has exhausted himself with his complaint, with his questioning, with his desire to answer, to be answered, the Lord draws near to him. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. He didn't stay far off. The Lord drew near to Job in a way that he even could see with his eyes. This is a tenderness. It's uh, God is condescending to weakness here. He gives Job something to look at. 
And what Job has longed for, he gets. A conversation with God. And God comes and he speaks personally to Job. And as we've said, when the Lord is doing deep discipline, the way that he goes about it is questioning. He comes with a question. In this case, it turns out to be many questions. There's a leading one. Who is this? The darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. Pull yourself up so you can bear this exchange. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? All the questions that follow are wrapped in that one. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Say it another way. Do you really accept your limitations? And my wisdom about how to unfold my plans for my world. Do you accept that? It's a piercing question. And it has to come to all of us. Because like Job, none of us can avoid this perspective that we are at the center of the world. That is how we go through life. Uh, And I mean the center of world history, the arc of world history. Because from, from your vantage point, All the history of the world has led up to you, right? I mean, as we're looking out and we're thinking about time and the world, it's led here. We survey the past. We consider the future. You are the pivot point. And so all of life, your life, seems to take its meaning from your life. But where were you when God laid the foundations of the earth? You were in his mind. You were a speck. A speck in the story that he was about to set in motion. A speck in the story. Tiny. Unnecessary. Only God is necessary. Unnecessary. Thousands of years on in the plot. You were there in his mind, as unnecessary as any ancient sewage digger. And yet, you were in his mind. That's something. You were given a part. When the foundations of the earth were laid, you were there in his mind with a part to play, an essential part. Essential because he made you. In these plans he was about to begin, from the start, you were important. You were there in his mind. So, the same one, the same one who knows where every fawn is born, who knows when each lily opens itself, who knows right now that crocuses are pushing their way through. He knows each one. He knows when each sparrow fledges. He knows all about your role and how precious it is. As precious as the life of a quarry worker in India 
who will spend his whole life breaking stones. Precious life. So in other words, God draws near to us and he says in our confusion and distress, I'm sorry, but you cannot possibly understand what you're asking for. You cannot possibly understand this plan, nor your part in it. Will you accept your inability to understand? Will you trust that I know what I'm doing? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God has another line of questioning because Job not only asked to understand, which he can't, but he also set blame on God. He did the move. He put God at fault, God in the wrong. And that is a different thing than wanting to understand. It's the Adam and Eve move. In chapter 40, verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Dress for action like a man. Get ready for this. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? The NIV has, will you condemn me? To justify yourself? Again, what Job has done here is essentially human. He's looking out from the center of his story, his own story. He's trying to make sense of the world. And he grasps at several points of reference. This is a human thing to do. We have to try to make sense of the world because it does not make sense. It, it doesn't. From our perspective, it doesn't make sense. But we try to make it so. We try to make it work, fit together. And so he grasps at several points of reference. The world is full of evil and it's full of destruction. I haven't deserved it. God has all power. Therefore, God must be in the wrong. Destruction, I don't deserve destruction. God has power. He's wrong. So Job has made his perspective. This is what we do. He's made his perspective and his own righteousness equal with God's. He is saying, I can see as well as God can see. I can weigh, I can measure the sense that I can make of the world is as equal with God. So God asks, is that a warranted conclusion? Will you, being who you are and what you are, put me, the holy God, in the wrong so that you can be in the right? And that is a scary question. And I doubt we can, I doubt we can truly and honestly ask it of ourselves without the help of God's Spirit. 
Because we are so accustomed. It's so ingrained in our thinking, our thought patterns, that we assume and we hold on to our own righteousness, our, our own rightness. We have to be right. Every single day we're fighting with others. I'm talking spouses, siblings, parents, friends, coworkers. The fights that we have, almost every disagreement is because we need to be in the right. I cannot be put in the wrong. I have to hold on to it because if I'm not right, then I'm less. If I'm not right, I'm worthless. If I'm not right, I'm unimportant. If I'm not right, then things are going to slip out of my control. If I'm not right, I'm not God. I'm not the center of the world that all my senses tell me that I am. That confronts us. I'll conclude with Job's conclusion. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You are the mighty one and the plans are yours. I'm not at the center. You said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I cast away this self and repent in dust and ashes. The sense is, through God's questions, as he brings questions to the heart, Job rejects the mindset that he had adopted. He rejects the position he had staked out. He rejects the self-justifying stance. He will receive a change of mind. He will receive the change of mind that the Lord has brought to him through the questions. The humble place. He'll receive that. Dust and ashes. He will no longer fear being worthless. He will no longer fear being unimportant and not in the right. Only God is in the right. In all this room, only God is in the right. And it's in that place that he sees the Lord. I'd heard of you. Now I see you. It's in that place that he knows who God really is. The Lord has not answered Job's questions. He's not explained anything to him. He just questioned him. But he's brought Job to a right perspective. And so God has renewed a right spirit within him. He's given him repentance. He's given him a change of mind. Are you open to that? Are you open? Will you let the Lord... 
remove you from the center of even your own story. So that he can give you the place he has chosen for you in his story. In the redemptive plan that he's unfolding. Will you accept the place he has assigned to you? Or will you insist on the place that you have chosen? Are you really open to that? Because that's repentance. That's repentance. And he must give it to you. But are you open to it? We asked for this. Whether or not you were here on Ash Wednesday, we, the church, asked for it. So if you're part of us, you asked for it. We asked for it. Are you personally open to it? Father, thank you for your word and that you show us through your word how you deal with us, frail people in a world that has turned against you. We thank you that you have not just left us, but you've come to meet us. You draw near to us and you bring healing. Give us a will to receive you. In Jesus' name.